So we're back after a two weeks of absolute shit show in the world of politics. Um, there's been a lot that's happened, so we've got a lot to talk about. We uh, do, and I don't think we're going to try and cover too much of it because otherwise we would drive ourselves insane. <laughs> yeah. And you, yeah. you would all be driven completely mad by so, the compressed revelations of everything that's <laughs> happened in the last two weeks. You listen to Off The Fence. Um, my name's James Fox. I'm Alex Maskell. Um, we're going to be talking about a fair few things tonight, but mainly, obviously, it's Brexit, the Tories tearing themselves apart, basically becoming a dumpster fire um, in British politics, and Theresa May, her position, whether she's going to be Prime Minister in a month or two, or even next week. She is absolutely refusing to not be Prime Minister so far, so let's see how long she can keep this up for. Yeah. We might as well, if we can come on to it, if we've got time, um, talk about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in America, a Democrat House representative uh, from New York. Um, yes, our streaming, cons- our streaming socialist. Yeah, and about kind of some of the criticism she's gotten this week and how it's complete bullshit. It's, it's kind of fascinating. Quickly, though, a few things. Firstly, have you checked out this UN report? Um, it's basically about austerity in the UK. It did quite a lot of the rounds uh, midweek and was in the news a little bit, but did kind of get buried, like a lot of other stories that would come out in this time period, by what was going on politically well, with of Theresa course. May. It's, it's not a horse race, it's just a genuinely damning condemnation of the way that you know the powerful have been running our society over the last yeah. decade. I'm going to read a little bit now, a bit of it now, a bit of the reporting on it. Um, this is from The Guardian, who explained, the UK government has inflicted, quote, great misery on its people with, quote, punitive, mean-spirited and often callous austerity policies driven by a political desire to undertake social re-engineering rather than economic necessity, the United Nations poverty envoy has found. Fuck, it's almost like the left were completely correct about everything for the last 10 years. (laughs) Jesus. It's almost like a Keynesian demand-side economics program would have actually done much more for the economy than the brutal austerity that's been undertaken so far. But it's it's almost as though this was a political decision. Like, as the left have been saying for a yeah. decade. So this guy is called Philip Alston. Like we said, he's the United Nations poverty envoy. Is um, he some kind of commie pinko type? Well, you can hear those accusations coming now, can't you? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He is the UN's rapporteur. Have I said that word right? Maybe. On extreme poverty and human rights. Uh, He ended a two-week facts-finding mission to the UK with a stinging declaration that levels of child poverty were not just a disgrace, but a social calamity and an economic disaster, which is through the roof now, child poverty. The numbers are in the millions. Even though the UK is the world's fifth largest economy, we still have to have child poverty like it, it's insane and how people that can wrap their heads around oh poverty, uh, capitalism is working you know in this way well okay. so they, they frame it through necessity they yeah. say like well we had to do this in order to you know get through uh the you know big recession and again no that's that's not that's not the correct economic program to run then unless your first priority is to retain and entrench power and capital among the already most powerful and most wealthy. Let's have a little bit of the figures on this. About 14 million people, a fifth of the population, live in poverty and 1.5 million are destitute, being unable to afford basic essentials, he said, citing figures from the Institute for Fiscal Studies and the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. He highlighted predictions that child poverty could rise by 7% between 2015 and 2022, possibly up to a rate of 40%. 
there's more of a quote here. It is patently unjust and contrary to British values that so many people are living in poverty. <laughs> Clearly he doesn't know very much about British values because it's very in tune with how yeah. the society's been run for basically the entire time I've been around aside from like the mile, like the slight gap, the social democratic consensus yeah. in the mid-century. It's a 24-page report and you can read it if you want to. Uh, he presents it to the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva next year, which famously... Um, I'm pretty sure the UN Human Rights Council has a Saudi Arabia on the on it. If that's the same council that I'm thinking of, I remember who put them there. Oh, it's the UK. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah the, reg- that. the regime that beheads people has been put on the Human Rights Council by one United Kingdom. Yeah, I wonder if they'll return the favour on this issue. Related to this, though, half of young people facing homelessness are denied help. Uh, this is another report that says more than half of young people facing homelessness who approached their local council for help last year received no meaningful support, potentially putting them at risk of sleeping rough, violence or abuse, and more than 100,000, 100,000 16 to 24 year olds in the UK turned to their local authority for assistance in 2017 to 2018. That's just the last year. Um, this uh, research is by Centrepoint, um, and they say that this is likely to be a significant underestimate the charity says as it does not include young people who turned to charities for help or who ended up sofa surfing with friends for example which is pretty common so we're going to be coming on to the welfare state in the uk later on with universal credit and some updates on that at least who's going to be in charge of it um, before we talk about that though later on the midterms are a thing that happened and most recently tell us what happened in georgia well, after a frankly astonishing amount of basically open vote rigging and voter disenfranchisement... And we talked about up, this on the last episode as well. So we did, yes. Uh, Stacey Abrams has just recently uh, been forced to concede uh, the race after holding on for a proper recount for a you know, good week and a half or so. And um, you know, we've seen the same thing just recently from Andrew Gilliam in uh, Florida, who, while it came much, much closer than anyone had thought, uh, did still come out as a loss because of, again, really kind of shocking voter disenfranchisement. You know, certainly in particular in Georgia, Brian Kemp's tactic worked. Uh, There was, you know, stunning levels of voter disenfranchisement that we covered uh, last episode. And yeah, it worked. He successfully managed to uh, define the rules for the game he was playing in enough that he could very, very narrowly win. Uh, and so God knows what he'll be doing for the next election. But some of the good news is that the Democrats did take the House by a considerable margin. They did, and they also managed to use the momentum from even a lot of failed races, such as in Florida and in Texas, to achieve a reasonable amount at a local level. Yeah, we've mentioned Richard O'Jedrell in the previous episode as well he uh, was running in a 49 percent trump district it was pretty much one of the reddest districts in the united states yeah and he got that gap down to like 11 12 points which is quite something um, yeah it's pretty dramatic yeah uh, i believe he's running for president now which can be interesting and we'll, we'll follow that as that that goes on so that's the midterms also jeff sessions resigned as well so that's going to have implications for the Miller probe. And it's going to be interesting to see how people like Lindsey Graham, Senator, and previously people like John McCain, who's now passed away, said things like, well, if he fires Sessions, that's the first sort of grounds that we're going to be thinking about impeachment, you know. Well, they won't. They're yeah. full of shit. Exactly. It's going to be interesting to see if they actually follow through on that. I somehow think they won't. He did say that if they fire Miller, then that's 100% he's going out now. So 
We'll see. We'll see if that happens, which it could likely do in the next few months. Let's move on to the crux of today's episode. And this is Brexit, the ongoing and most boring television show in British history. Um, it is still happening. Yeah, I've just been watching The Good Place instead. It's much better. I have no idea what The Good Place is. You don't know anything about The Good Place? No. <gasps> Give Dude. me in 10 seconds. Woman wakes up, finds out she has died and is in heaven. As she's trying to find her way around, she admits to the person who's supposed to be her soulmate that she is not supposed to be there, that there's a case of mistaken identity. So it is a kind of dirtbag in heaven trying to avoid getting caught. It goes way beyond that into okay. some completely bizarre and you know strange places. Anyway, back to Brexit. <laughs> the withdrawal deal was announced. Theresa May's finally announced uh, that she's made a withdrawal deal. About a year after, apparently, I think uh, I was expecting it to be done. Because I remember there was the backstop stuff agreed in like December last year. And do you remember, you know, after the election last year and within the election, we were talking about, oh, Michel Barnier, um, you know, they're going through the three things that matter, EU citizen rights, the, uh, the money to pay to the European Union, the withdrawal fee, and the Northern Irish border. They're still dealing with that stuff now. Yeah, funny like, that. I thought they were meant to have finished this like a year ago. This isn't even the future relationship. This is just us coming out of the EU and dealing with the problems of coming out. Insane. So, I mean, that's the deal that's been agreed, anyway, between the European Union and UK negotiators. That doesn't mean it's been agreed in Cabinet. Well, of course. That happened later in the week. And it it still needs to go through Parliament, which isn't going to happen. We'll come on to that later on. Anyway, so this deal is announced and she's got to negotiate it with the Cabinet as well. Remember, there's there's lots of Leave supporters in the Cabinet, people that campaigned in the referendum to leave the uh, the European Union. Uh, And there's also Remainers in the Cabinet. Interestingly... Pretty much all the levers in the cabinet um, decided, oh, this deal is actually not what we wanted. Um, we, we, we thought, Theresa May, you were going to do, uh, do what we wanted, even though you were uh, campaigned for Remain in the referendum and lots of things uh, that people didn't expect you to do, you've done. But anyway, so that led to a few resignations. Dominic Raab is Brexit secretary uh, and, and Esther McVeigh at the uh, Department for Work and Pensions. Which I, I think some people were excited to see those people go, especially Esther McVeigh, who is, of all the Tories, probably one of the most loathsome people that I can think of in the Conservative Party that has any sort of degree of power in the Cabinet. Yeah, she's pretty messed up. Those people resigned, plus a few others as well. It's just so obvious that Theresa May wasn't going to bring back the deal. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, you know, it's mostly just political theatre. They know that this won't be popular with the base. Yeah. Some of these people were resigning and then saying, oh, no, I fully support Theresa May as prime minister. Well, of course. <laughs> it's, it's completely nonsensical except to protect their personal brands. It's because, you know, Dominic Raab wants to be prime minister someday. Yeah, yeah there Mc- is that. You know, Esther McVeigh, don't know what she's doing. I don't know if she thinks she's going to be prime minister one day. But, um, you know, so this, is, this is very much just about protecting themselves. There was that time for ages trying to work out who the new Brexit secretary was going to be. And it was... A lot of people were speculating it might be uh, Michael Gove because he's the one person who's on the pretty strong leave side who was backing the deal up saying, oh, you know, we should support May. It's the best deal we're going to get. Yeah. And then it turns out it wasn't it wasn't going to be him. And people I, I was just thinking, what's what's the point? Like whoever she puts up next, like it's just going to be a joke. Like what's the point of putting another Brexit secretary in? She just scrapped the department. I and mean, then just she's doing it herself anyway. Yeah, I mean it's it's 
basically anything other than this kind of build would involve a kind of just crashing out of the whole thing entirely. And there are people whose private uh, interests and the interests of their particular stakeholders would benefit from that kind of thing. And so that, that definitely is a factor here that, um, you know, for a, a lot of them, their interest is in deliberately kind of basically sabotaging whatever comes along. Yeah. The replacements have been announced for both of those. Stephen Barkley? You heard of Stephen Barkley? Nobody has heard no. of Stephen Barkley. <laughs> He's the new Brexit secretary. He's a complete unknown. He's someone with uh, who has no... Uh, an ultra-loyalist, apparently. And, and has... also no someone who doesn't have a political constituency within the party. Exactly, well. yeah. That's what I was about to say. He's got no political power base of his own. So he can go into the cabinet and just be... Uh, like we said, an ultra-loyalist who's not going to shake anything up. Yeah, no, it's, it's just going to be like, you know, they say jump, he asks how high. Yeah, a largely pointless position putting that person as a Brexit secretary when Theresa May has said herself she's doing most negotiation stuff anyway. So we mentioned Esther McVeigh as the uh, Work and Pension Secretary. She resigned as well. I, I think whenever a Tory Work and Pension Secretary resigns, there's always like a massive cause of celebration amongst the left. Like, do you remember when IDS resigned and everyone was uh, like... Yes. It's just like, it's a very specific thing about like British left-right politics. When a Tory welfare minister resigns, it's just like, okay, Yeah, good. it's like, well, eventually we'll cycle through all of them and yeah. then they won't be able to have one. <laughs> It'll be fine. She's resigned. Esther McVeigh, Work and Pension Secretary, who's been announced as her replacement... Oh. Who indeed? Amber Rudd. Our local friend. Hastings and Rye MP, Amber Rudd, and former Home Secretary. Who had to resign? Why? Because I... she disgraced herself with the Windrush scandal. And it came out that dozens, or if say hundreds, of um, people of colour who came to this country uh, to become citizens, fully yeah. British citizens. Promised you know, British citizenship. Yeah, had been basically deported. Uh, and had their British citizenship pretty much stripped away. And it actually turns out recently, through further research and further questioning, there's about 11 or 12, I haven't got the numbers in front of me, there's around a dozen people that have died as a consequence of that. To take that into account would assume for a moment that the Conservatives have any amount of shame in bringing like, the person who kind of presided over that back into the fold. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that they have, and it shows that they have no shame. So she's back there... Running universal credit, that's the new proposal for welfare that the Conservatives have been working on for years now, and it's being rolled out quite a lot across the country, and there's been a lot of problems with it. It's kind of universal credit within the media has been um, seen to be one of the sore spots for the government anyway, in terms of their, the way they're running the country. Because it's been a disaster at yeah. basically every point. Let's talk about a little bit about universal credit in her own constituency of Hastings and Rye, because this is where this MP's coming from. The Huffington Post came out with some interesting statistics. Um, they reported the National Audit Office found that Hastings Trussell Trust Food Bank saw an 80% rise in those requiring food parcels after Universal Credit's full-service scheme was rolled out in the seaside town. The rollout impacted the town in other ways too. The NAO's report, published in June, said, quote, In the Hastings area, a property agent told us only one in ten private landlords using their agency in the town will rent to benefit claimants. So if you're on universal credit, you know, fat chance getting anywhere to live. Meanwhile, the NAO found that Hastings Citizens Advice Bureau was considering cutting services so it could keep up with a huge increase in the numbers of universal credit claimants seeking support. So 
It doesn't look good for Universal Credit in Hastings. It looks extremely bad. Here's a quote from Rudd. In my constituency in Hastings and Rye, it really has transformed lives, she said, uh, referring to Universal Credit. Transforming lives. In what way, precisely? The fact they can't get property to live in, um, the fact that food bank use is going up. It's going to transform your life, man. You're going to go to a food bank and it'll be great. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's... Traditionally, that's how conservatives have thought that the poor and needy should be dealt with through private charity acts. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's like that, the time that Jacob Rees-Mogg said it's, it's good that food banks happening, and Esther McVeigh said it herself as well. It's a good thing. It's be, and it brings back to this kind of Victorian mindset that, you know, people giving money to charity is good. It's not something that necessarily the state should be doing. You should be forced to, you know, pay yeah, taxes. It, it should be an opportunity for you to prove what a good Christian you are. Yeah, essentially, it's not seen as a failure. It's seen as something that's good no. and relevant. And it's certainly not something that should be organised or taken into the hands of you know, the public sphere uh, for administration by you know the people who are actually be using it. It's supposed to be something that is doled out from an aristocratic class. Yeah. So Amber Rudd saying Universal Credit has transformed lives in Hastings and Rye. And we should continue the rest of that quote, though, because she does go in a different direction, too. But I also recognise there have been some issues with it. And I very much see it as my job, my role, to try and iron out those issues and make sure Universal Credit is a force wholly for good. I mean, it literally is her job. It's great that she sees it that way. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's the situation with Amber Rudd. She's back in the cabinet now. It's worth mentioning, though, she is a pretty big Remainer in the context of Brexit. And she's actually made noises in the past that a people's vote, a second referendum, all that sort of stuff is something that she's in favour for. You know, she's very explicitly said that. So in terms of the balance of the Conservative Party's situation in the cabinet, there uh, there are leavers now who are saying this is this is rocks the balance of power between Remain and Leave in the cabinet. We've now got more Remainers than Leavers in the Cabinet. And to them I say, well, that's what happens when you're a Leaver and you decide to resign. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, you want Leavers to be in the Cabinet and you've decided to walk out and now you're upset that there's no Leavers in the Cabinet. Okay, we see your logic there. It's They're extremely smart. Their brains are so powerful, they use them every day. On to some more... um, Absolutely astonishing brain power from the Conservatives. You've actually got a clip, ladies and gentlemen, of one Jacob Rees-Mogg. For those that don't, I mean, you know who he is now. He's the Beano character in the Conservative Party. That's pretty much a lot of people know him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a he's a he's a weedy thoroughbred horse that has been given human form by a wizard, <laughs> and uh, now he exists to basically uh, turn us into a Catholic theocracy. He's the Member of Parliament for the 19th century. He is. Uh, he is a North East Somerset MP, and he is the chair of the ERG, the hard-right faction in the Conservative Party that we've mentioned a couple of times on this show, and we probably can mention them a lot yes, more on this Yes, that is segment. the European Research Group. Yes, uh, and they are the, sometimes referred to by other MPs as, quote, the crazies. These are the people who some people say are actually running the government kind of from the back benches by forcing Theresa May to do their bidding. Otherwise, yeah. they'll they'll vote against her. And They're a like very that. tightly disciplined voting block, mostly maintained around a WhatsApp group because it's 2018 and we live in hell. Yeah. <laughs> so this is Jacob Rees-Mogg, um, and he's basically reacting to this withdrawal deal that these hard right conservatives are not happy about. 
And they really, they really trusted May in the past and thought they were going to do everything that they were asking for. Mostly because they were dictating it and they thought that she would just have to go yeah. with it. Let's hear what they had to say here. My right honourable friend, and she is unquestionably honourable, said that we would leave the customs union. Annex 2 says otherwise. My right honourable friend said that she would maintain the integrity of the United Kingdom. A whole protocol says otherwise. My right honourable friend said that we would be out of the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. Article 174 says otherwise. As what my right honourable friend says and what my right honourable friend does no longer match, should I not write to my right honourable friend, the member for Altrincham and Sale West? So what he's meaning there, let's, let's just run through that clip a little bit more in description. He's basically saying, what Theresa May says and what Theresa May does, you know, what she says to us, what she promises us, and what she does are two different things. Um, so should I basically vote against Theresa May being party leader? Should I get rid of, should we be getting rid of her? And to that they say, um, you've spent a year and a half to work this out, that she's not going to deliver everything that you want. Like, you're dealing now with a situation that was, took place after the general election last year. The reason why she can't deliver you what you want is because she's also got to deliver the DUP. And she's got to make sure there's no Northern Irish border. And because this was always, like, it was this always was a al fantasy. Yeah, this was always the way it was going to play out. And it's now a year and a half later, and people like Jacob Rees-Mogg are like, oh no, it's not going the way we wanted. We thought it was going to be fine. She can't, these three groups of people, or at least the three promises, that there's not going to be a Northern Irish hard border, she's not going to disappoint the DUP by putting the a border in the Irish Sea. And yes, she's not going to disappoint the people like him, Jacob Rees-Mogg, um, by not coming out of the customs union. She has to disappoint one of those promises. It turns out that she's actually beginning to disappoint both the DUP and the Conservative backbenchers. So she's disappointed two out of those three promises. Um, and now you've got people like Jacob Rees kicking off. You know what they should have done? If they actually wanted to do what they wanted to do, they should have had the balls to get rid of Theresa May after the election last year. Yeah. And, and real, real, put someone in place that actually speaks up for what they want. Yeah, like the ghost of some former count. Yeah. It just seems insane that these people are going, oh, we've got to get rid of her now, uh, six months before Brexit, when they could have sorted this all out uh, after the election. But the reason why they didn't do it after the election last year is because they were, one, scared of Jeremy Corbyn. Suddenly, uh, you know the the face of the left had managed to get 40% in a general election, 40% of the vote, increasing 10% from their last vo uh, vote share in 2015. The largest increase in the Labour vote since 1945. You know, uh, a, a poll a poll climb from 22, 24, the mid 20s uh, at most at best, up to 40% in yeah. their vote share. And all but the most in in six weeks. It's never happened in British general British politics ever, according and to the experts. You've never ever seen a poll climb like that in a general election. You've never, you've, you've barely ever seen it across two elections, the two years that we've had between those two elections. And um, you've never seen it within the six weeks. And not to mention going into the next one, they're only going to have the most determined careerist factionalists trying to sabotage the leadership, where before it was a fairly open thing. Yeah. And they were all backing her, saying she's going to deliver what we want. These people are now making manoeuvres to get rid of her, and they do that 
How? By submitting letters to the influential 1922 committee, um, which is basically the system when they receive 15% of MPs writing to them saying we need to get rid of Theresa May or whoever the Prime Minister is, it triggers a confidence vote. And 15% is of the Conservative MPs is 48, so a lot of media have been reporting that. Once those uh, 48 letters are in, this confidence vote happens and all the Conservative MPs have a secret ballot of whether they support Theresa May or not. Um, so it's something like 155 or 159, around that mark. Um, it's a simple majority, so they, if they get more than that, then uh, a leadership election is triggered. That might not even happen. It certainly would be pretty funny, right, if they get the 48 letters in and then the confidence vote happens and then Theresa May wins it. Well, I mean, <laughs> you laughed yourself there. Can you imagine if that happens? It would also, it would almost be fitting, right, for the ridiculousness of our politics at the moment. Because she has said she will fight it. She will fight it, yeah. She's not going to resign over that. It's pretty wild. There's also a huge amount of uh, discontinuity. Just, just before that, though, if she wins that uh, confidence vote, it means that they can't trigger any of this shit for another 12 months. No, it rules. So it would literally be another 12 months of Theresa May. That's like pretty much Brexit. We're well into Brexit happening in a way that can't be like pulled back. Yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. <laughs> There's also been a huge amount of ambiguity on how many letters have gone in or are in at any one point. Because, exactly. And in particular, given the number that have already been confirmed as going in, uh, the ERG theoretically has enough to take it over the yeah. top. They, they say they've had enough. And Steve Baker, their chair earlier in the week, basically said, by my count, we've got at least 48. You know, that's where we're at. Update later on, he was like, well, actually, my count can't be trusted because it might be an overestimate. You know, <laughs> you know it might be an overestimate. Now, Graham Brady, he's the chair of this uh, committee that the letters come into. The he's the guy. Committee. Yeah, he's the guy they write to. So he's the one handling it all. He's the only one that knows, as people regularly say, the only person that really knows is Graham Brady. So um, he's the one that knows. He was on John Pienaar this morning, a show on BBC Radio 5 Live. Um, he said he hasn't received 48. This flies in the face of people saying that, you know, by my count, according to Steve Baker, 48 letters have come in. You know, we're organising. So someone's lying yeah, or, or someone's been lied to. And we've got Conservative MPs telling people like Steve Baker or, you know, the media saying my letter's gone in when it hasn't. Yeah, And either way, it really undermines uh, the ability of the ERG to you know, make demands because yeah. their whole thing has been their discipline and their willingness to take extreme action. And this completely undermines that. So that's kind of interesting to see. Just. Uh on the night of the deal being uh, announced as well, Wednesday night, I think, on Newsnight, Anne-Marie Morris, Conservative MP, um, she actually said on Newsnight, um, yeah, 48 letters have been received, like she knows, or whatever. I think she's probably part of the EIG and thought they were there with it, but... Yeah. As, as of the time of recording this, to unsort it out. And if they, don't, if they don't get 48 letters by probably, like, the end of play Monday, tomorrow, I don't imagine... They'll, have, they'll sort it out at all. No, at that, just, at that point, they're going to have to... They'll look massively stupid. Um, there's also conservative pieces like Andrew Bridgen, who have alleged that Graham Brady, the guy who's organized, you know, receives these letters, has actually got 48 and he's just sitting on them. And he's uh, just like too terrified to trigger the election. He's just sitting in a room, surrounded by like, like mail bags full of letters <laughs> coming in, pouring. And he's just like, we can't do this. He, on John Pino, Graham Brady, said the idea that he'd be doing that was offensive. And that if he receives 48, it's happening and it will be on. In terms of Theresa May's longevity, 
where do you where do you think it's at at the moment? Do you think this leadership election is going to make it through next week? Uh, I'm starting to become less sure of it as it goes on. Like I'm actually thinking, you know, these guys have been given way too much credit for being either a being able to organise any of this shit. Or B, being able to count to the number 48. Yeah, they're, they're just... Their credibility has become so shot over the last week. And remember, this is the group that would essentially be running the country if this all goes through. Yeah, I... Not from the back benches, well, actually on the front benches, cabinet well, we always assumed, based on the perception of incredible tightness and discipline that they supposedly had. And the one thing we've learned in the last week is that they apparently don't have that. You know, already there was, there was, you know, a real disconnect between, uh, for instance, Jacob Rees-Mogg, its most visible member, and uh, the rest of the group, where he was saying that there should absolutely be a no-confidence vote, but within the WhatsApp, there was a lot of reporting saying that senior members were demanding that they don't go ahead with it. So, we're seeing a fracturousness from them. Which I think is interesting, which I think, like I say, really undermines them in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. And there's people people in that group that have small majorities as well. Ian Duncan Smith, he's got a majority of you know, just a few thousand. These people probably, I mean, Boris Johnson as well. Yeah, these, these are all people that are going to be polished off. Yeah, these people won't be MPs after the next election. And even if you don't think that's a certainty, it's a very big possibility, whatever you want to argue. We should mention as well, Amber Rudd, who we mentioned earlier, majority of 300 and something. Yeah, she's going. She, <laughs> so they put her into one of those powerful cabinet positions. I mean, she was formerly Home Secretary. I want to move on to another clip now. This is more on the Brexit deal. Um, and obviously people have been appearing in media on, on you know, the Sunday just gone. Um, talking about it, Jeremy Corbyn was on Sophie Ridge, Theresa May was on Sophie Ridge on Sky News, um, talking about it, and Dominic Raab was on Andrew Marr. And he told Andrew Marr that um, actually no deal no deal would be better than this deal that May's put forward, you know? No deal at least would be a, quote, manageable situation. <laughs> no, remember, this is the same guy who said last summer that in a no-deal situation, the army's going to be called in to secure... Um, you know, medicine supplies. I mean, technically, that is management. <laughs> we can manage it using the army to bring it brought in. And it's yeah, actually yeah. just... Military a, rule is what he's the, going with. Yeah, the Times reported today um, that Operation No Deal, um, they're planning to bring arm, the army in, um, not just for, you know, making sure supplies get pushed around and, you know, there's medicines and food delivered to the the shires and to scotland and places like that um they're actually going to bring in you know thousands of police officers um to make sure there's not riots outstanding i mean Uh, i'd like to think they would do that if that was a threat so the fact that we're bringing about this situation oh no it's fine we can manage it because the police will stop the riots uh always good or rather the army would stop the riots as they're going to be bringing yeah yeah. no uh uh, colonel rob will be staging a coup and (laughs) occupying the cities if he has to Oh, God. Anyway, also on Mar was Shami Chakrabarti. She's the Shadow Attorney General. So, you know, the person that gives legal advice to the government, or at least in this situation, the Shadow Cabinet. Um, so with this deal out on the table, she's going to be someone who's read it quite a lot. and uh, You would hope. Yeah, and is across it. Much like the Attorney General in the government, Jeffrey Cox. Anyway, there's a lot of criticism that Andrew Mar has come in for for this interview. Why? Well, let's find out. It's unacceptable to all sides to leave us, to have remain you read us. It? Yes, I have actually, but but I'm uh, sure you have too. I've read an awful you've, lot you've, of it, yeah. Well, I've read it all. Thank you. Um, so I, I can't understand why you want to leave the EU. 
I don't want to leave the... I campaign but to you're, remain. But you're going, you're going to go into a general election campaign as a member of a party whose manifesto says we are leaving the, the EU, we are I'm EU I'm a Democrat. I don't, know about you. I don't know about you, Andrew, but I'm a Democrat. Don't, don't try and patronise me. I'm as much a Democrat as you are. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I certainly wouldn't try to, to patronise no. anyway. you. I'm sure you would never try and patronise me. Neither way. Right, OK there. That seemed to be a bit awkward, a bit fiery. I mean, let's run through that again. The first clip there we had was... Uh, they're talking about uh, the deal that's on the table. The deal is actually in front of them. It's all printed out on the table. And she's saying this deal, you know, is not the it's not the deal that we should have. We've got six tests. You know, we're against the deal. It's not it's not a good deal. We shouldn't be supporting it. They've always had them. They they've always said that they would support a Brexit deal that met the promises that the Leave campaign were made, which was always I a mean, tactical move, obviously. Yeah, but, but also like that kind of makes sense, right? The Leave support the Leave. <clears throat> the Leave campaign promised these things. The Leave campaign won, so we're going to demand that those, those at least those things are met, right? Sure, it, or at least it makes sense as long as the, you know, the negotiators are external to the Labour Party who are maintaining these standards. Yeah. As long as the Conservatives are doing this, it's one thing. And what did what does he say there? He says, "Have you read it?" And she says, "Yes." Have you? And he says, I, "I've read most of it." And she says, "Well, I've read all of it. Thank you." Which is like a pretty good put down. Yeah, you got to enjoy that. Yeah, and then in the second clip, which is arguably even worse, maybe this bizarre. You know, are you? I don't patronise me. I'm a Democrat too. I'm a Democrat just as much as you are. And Shami Chakrabarti says, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm a Democrat. And he basically takes that as like a oh, uh, she's questioning how much of a Democrat I am. And this was well, no, she's just speaking for herself. She's saying, I don't know about you. Um, Andrew, but I can speak for myself saying that I'm a Democrat. We voted leave. Um, so we need to at least take that into account. Let's hear it again, because it's just, let's hear both of those again, because it's just bizarre. It's unacceptable to all sides to leave us, to have remain you read us. It? Yes, I have actually, but, but I'm uh, sure you have too. I've read an awful you, lot of it, yeah. Well, I've read it all. Thank you. Um, so I, I can't understand why you want to leave the EU. I don't want to leave the EU. I campaign but to remain. But you're going, you're going to go into a general election campaign. As a member of a party whose manifesto says we are leaving the, M the EU, we are I'm EU. I'm a Democrat. I don't know Brexit about you. Enablers. I don't know about you, Andrew, but I'm a Democrat. Don't, don't try and patronise me. I'm as much a Democrat as you are. I, I, uh, I, I certainly wouldn't try to, to patronise no. anyway. you. I'm sure you would never try and patronise me. Yeah, it's, it's just odd the fact that he went on that line. And people are saying, some people out there are saying, oh well, he treats Shami Chakrabarti like this, um, and then treats uh, Dominic Raab in an interview on that same show with Kid Gloves. I'm not quite sure that he treated Dominic Raab with Kid Gloves, but he certainly didn't do that. He certainly didn't act like that and, and in a ridiculous way to, you no, know. No, he was clearly trying to needle her over, like, the, the contradiction that simply, like, wasn't there. She yeah, was and I understand journalists have to ask questions that counter people's positions to try and hold them to account, but if Labour were doing what he's trying to put out there, saying, you know... You should be campaigning for Remain. You should be saying we should remain in the EU. I can't understand why you want to leave. And it's like, no, we campaigned for Remain, but there was a referendum and we lost it. So we need to at least take that into account. If they were going for Remain and they were saying we're doing the Liberal Democrat position, we'd know we should just stay in the EU or at least have a people's vote, whatever. Then they'd be saying, we had a referendum. Do you not respect the... You're not a Democrat, are yeah, you? Yeah, at the very least, there's a certain elite perspective that that was... That that was kind of uh, academic. That it really does come down to whether or not you personally want, uh, whether or not you personally want Brexit, is whether or not you support it. They've already completely kind of passed back 
the idea that this is just a thing that's happening in the domain of elites. We've also got another clip, maybe a slightly better interview on this topic. A similar question, really, and it's discussing Jeremy Corbyn's beliefs on Europe and his situation, because obviously previously he's voted against a lot of European integration in previous decades, and some people say he's, oh, he's actually a secret lever. Let's have a listen to this. Sophie Ridge on Sky News. Uh, this is Jeremy Corbyn. When it comes to the EU, you know, you voted to leave the European Economic Community in the 1975 yes. referendum. You opposed the creation of the European Union in the Maastricht Treaty. You voted against... No, I, what I, I opposed the Maastricht Treaty because it was bringing in an unaccountable central bank and it was moving in the direction of a free yes. market Europe. But so you opposed by, the by parallel, I strongly supported the social measures that were brought in by the European Union, which Mrs Thatcher so strongly opposed. So I do support a social Europe. And actually, I've probably spent more time meeting European socialist parties than any other Labour leader ever has. But it's fair to say that you've had your concerns yeah. over the years about of course. Uh, the EU and about the uh, European community. I've had so, concerns so about you, the... Have, 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 I'm interested in your journey. Have, have you changed your mind? Would you consider yourself to be a Eurosceptic? Where, where are you at? I've always been in favour of social cooperation across Europe. I've always been in favour of better workers' rights. I strongly supported the whole social chapter agenda that was brought in uh, in the European Union. What I opposed was the development of free market economics in Europe. What I opposed was the state aid rules which limit to differing extents, the ability of a government to intervene on its own economy, like we would want to, to protect the steel industry, and also have concerns about some of the competition rules, particularly in relation to things like postal services and rail services. So would you describe yourself as a Eurosceptic? I would describe myself as a socialist who wants to see social justice in this country and across Europe. And I will be in Lisbon at the beginning of December with fellow socialist parties making exactly that message and exactly that case. We have to work with people across Europe. I mean, that's pretty much fair enough, right? That's a that's a pretty good answer. Yeah, and it's, it's worth mentioning that there are concerning clauses within the current uh, draft of the you know of the EU deal at the moment about how uh, we have to we would even after having left would have to maintain a certain standard of liberalised markets. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. you know, preventing a certain amount of government intervention in the economy. And some people are saying, you know, that is a clause put in there in the prospect of a future Labour government. I mean, certainly I'd imagine that's why the Conservatives were so happy to put it in there. It yeah. commits them to fundamentally maintaining the neoliberal status quo, that the entire appeal of the current left-wing Labour Party's configuration is that it is a break from that. There's also uh, another there's another interesting part of that of the deal that says if there is a uh, extension to the transition period uh, from Britain being in the EU to being fully out of the EU, um, the transition period. If there's an extension to that trans transition period, we will allow it and we will give it you know on the date twenty xx, which conceivably the transition period could last for the rest of this century. <laughs> Potential. I mean, that's not going to happen, let's be serious. I like but it. 20, it's so open-ended. Yeah, 20XX is the time frame over which the Mega Man games carry out. So that's <laughs> that's encouraging to me, uh, that we will have kind of bipedal fighting androids by the time we actually leave the <laughs> EU. That's not really that far off anyway, is it? According to DARPA. Anyway, on that same interview uh, with Corbyn, uh, on, with Sophie Ridge, um, he was asked, I believe, if there was a second referendum, if there was a people's vote, um, which way would you vote? Um, 
I think it I think it was on Sofa Ridge. Maybe I've got the wrong wrong show, but I'm pretty sure that one. And he says, I don't know. And apparently a lot of the FBP crew crew are absolutely up in arms the fact that Jeremy Corbyn doesn't know which way he'd vote in a hypothetical referendum that isn't going to happen anyway in the time that you'd need it to for it to make any sort of meaningful change. It's it's astonishing. Like these people are saying like what is your like what is the referendum? What's the question? What are the answers? When are you going to do it? How are you going to make it come about? Answer all of those and then I'll be able to tell you how I'd vote in it. And also the broader thing of do we want to participate in this very patronizing kind of would you like to take another go at that question yeah. thing? Unless it was significantly reframed throughout the campaign going up to it. If it was just a matter of like Okay, now we're going to do this again and you're going to make the right decision. Yeah. Like, at a certain point, you do have to make a decision of do you want to legitimize that way of doing politics quite apart from the question that is actually going on about the matter at hand. Yeah. And the other fact of this is, you know, these people haven't suddenly now gone, oh, it's coming to the end of the Brexit process and it doesn't look good. We should maybe have a second referendum. Like, the situation is very unclear we need to, you know, work out what's going on. They've pretty much called for it instantly after the referendum last in 2016. Yeah. Like, it was, it's just it, been a, co- a constant thing. It was it's immediately not, do it again and do it right this time. Yeah. If they hadn't done that, maybe you'd, uh, there'd be more credence to their argument. I don't know. Well, the opposite of that is clearly what Labour is relying upon. They're relying upon having set standards by which something would be acceptable and it not meeting those standards. And the fact that it would never have met those standards because it was based on promises that were essentially lies Mm. is kind of a point that you can talk about. But at the very least, there was a good faith attempt to go with, okay, what would be acceptable with both what we're trying to achieve and the will of the people as expressed through uh, the referendum we already had? Yeah. I mean, the larger point of all of this is that if you're going to have this second referendum, this people's vote... Like we said, you've got to ask these questions. What are the answers? What are the questions? What's the question going to be? Is it going to be a rerun of the 2016 and just have like, do you want to stay in or out? Whatever. Is it going to be, do you want the deal? Do you want the, do you want the remain and uh, deal and remain? Or is it deal, remain, leave? No deal? Is it no deal and the deal? What is, what is the question? And then we can work out how we're going to vote because the answers to those questions are significantly different in those different contexts. And after all of that, after you've given me all of that and and worked out how you're going to make it happen in time to happen before Brexit Day. After all of that, even if you were were to sort all that out, what's going to happen after this referendum, okay? If you you win it, right? If we suddenly have a a no-Brexit situation and it all reverses, is that just it? Like, everything just goes back into the box and it's all done and there's no repercussions and we just carry on like we were before and there's no problems... And yes, even those people who say austerity and all these problems, uh, you know, fed into Brexit and it's about solving those problems. You know, Brexit isn't going to make those problems better. It's going to make them worse, whatever. Even but we if, haven't seen them to commit to a programme to actually address the causes of Brexit yeah, in exactly. any meaningful way. But even if even if they did, even if they did do that, like, you know, even, even in that situation, you have to tackle the people that, that voted leave for those reasons and and give them this argument it just i get this impression from all these people who are saying a people's vote that we have the people's vote and then that's just it and even if we try and attack austerity like 
there's no it just seems a really dumb political move just to say we'll, we'll go back to how it before and we'll just go back to anti-austerity and it, that, that that's it and also i've seen no reason to think that they would have the the kind of people who are pushing for a people's vote would do anything at all to actually do anything differently they would run with the same messaging about how this guy who looks like your boss tells you it'd be a very bad idea for us to vote leave because it'll do nebulous things to the economy that would be bad and you know they wouldn't i've not seen any any reason to believe that they would do anything differently that they would take a different tack and try and view things and convince people in a way that would be markedly different from how they tried it the first time around yeah and that worries me because the worst case scenario of course would be we get this people's referendum and they lose again because they don't know how to convince anyone of anything other than their own narrow managerial view of politics we should also mention that uh there's some polling that's come out recently after all this mess with the conservatives you like to see what the polling is, right? You like is to see the if there's polling? if there's a bit of a shift. It turns out, as expected, the Conservatives have dropped a fair bit. Lib Dems are on, still on fucking nowhere. You've got a, a little bit of a rise for UKIP, and Labour are just holding strong. So, as you'd expect with a situation about Labour's awful Brexit strategy, Labour's awful strategy for Brexit, that um, you know they're still polling pretty well. You know, uh, you had a Comrades poll that came out. Uh, and this is actually 14th to 15th of November, which is about the time that this is all kicking off. Labour 40%, Conservatives 36%, minus three. That's the key thing. Lib Dems on nine, UKIP on seven, plus two, and Greens on three, plus one, which is largely the same thing. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's kind of, there's there's this bizarre line that you hear from a lot of people where like, well, if there was a, if there was a moderate uh, Labour MP, there'd yeah. be 20 points up. And, it's like... <laughs> and not to even mention that the, the kind of a ceiling for the two, two parties support is around 45%, at most 50%. It's, it's extremely rare you're going to get one of the two big parties push anywhere beyond 50%. So the fact that Labour on 40% and you're going to see 20 points more, 20 points higher. That's insane. We've also got another poll that came from Opinion. Um, and this was on the 14th of November. So this is just as the deal was coming out, I believe, around that sort of time. Uh, and we've got Labour 39% plus two. Conservatives 36% minus five. That's quite a big shift. UKIP 8% plus two. Lib Dem 7% minus one. And Green on 3%. It's just like, how do the FBP crowd explain those numbers there? I mean, they don't, because they don't view politics in these terms. They view politics entirely in the terms of asking to speak to the manager, because the service <laughs> around here has been just terrible. Yeah, and the guy with the beard is just just not not good enough. Yeah, they want this waiter replaced. And yeah. the fact that that hasn't happened, that someone hasn't gone, I'm terribly sorry, and acquiesced to what they want, just kind of confuses them. It's it's kind of fascinating to watch. Let's uh, we should probably leave things there. There's a lot we managed to talk about. This has been off the fence. Yeah, we'll talk about AOC next time. We will do. The thing is with AOC, I imagine that stuff's going to continue and intensify. Yeah, she seems to be very good at staying in the press. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we'll see how that goes, and we'll sure we'll talk about it again next week. Thanks for listening. It's been off the fence. SoundCloud.com/slash off the fence. If you're listening on there, give us a follow iTunes as well and on Twitter we are at Off The Fence Talk um, give us a follow on there give us a tweet thanks for listening I've been James Fox I'm Alex Maskell cheers